Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. My name is Stephanie Aliaga, and I'm a research associate on the Global Market Insights Strategy Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The global pandemic, supply chain problems, and heightened geopolitical tensions from Russia's war in Ukraine have all raised questions about whether the long trend towards globalization is being thrown into a reverse. But is it even possible to unwind decades of economic and capital market integration? Or maybe globalization is set to evolve rather than unravel. And if so, what does this mean for the global economy, inflation, and valuations? We recently released our 2023 long-term capital market assumptions at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And this year's edition features a paper that tackles exactly these questions. Today, I've invited two of the main authors for a conversation around the future of globalization. And if you'd like to dive deeper, we've also linked the full paper in the show notes. So joining me today, we have Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management and the usual host for this podcast, as well as Carrie Craig, Global Market Strategist for a team based out of Australia. So David and Carrie, welcome to Insights Now. Very glad to be here. Thanks, Stephanie. It's very nice to be here. David, perhaps let's start with defining our terms. What do you think about when we say globalization and what kind of forces drove this powerful trend over the last few decades? Well, I suppose at its most basic level, globalization is really about openness. It's, it's about uh, the transfer of goods and services around the world, but also uh, of uh, capital and labor, uh, business basically, basically being able to work around the world. And you could sort of take it one step further. I think that the long trend of globalization also encompasses um, a sharing of culture, a sharing of knowledge, a sharing of political systems. So it's, it's really just about making the world smaller. On the question of why have we seen a trend towards globalization over the, the re- recent decades, I think you know, this has always been going on for, you know, as transportation has uh, improved over the millennia it's it's occurred but i really think sort of the modern trend towards globalization springs out of both economic advantage and political necessity uh, after world war ii after that horrendous conflagration and, and really after both world war one and world war ii there was a clear need to try to achieve more economic integration um, in the hopes that that would actually bring more peace to the world and i think that that really uh, helped sort of the moderate forces around the world put institutions in place to, to, to uh, build uh, more integration. And so uh, over the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, really up until uh, this century, uh, we saw um, a steady increase in integration across um, uh, many, you know, many uh, dimensions. I think, uh, as I say, politics is part of it. But really, politics simply allowed economic forces to play out the way they should have. Because as transportation costs diminish, as communications costs diminish, there is a powerful incentive for global corporations and global businesses to take advantage of resources in different areas of the world. Some areas which are are, are rich in natural resources, some areas that are rich in um, cheap labor. There's some areas that are rich in um, intellectual um, uh, uh, property. And so I think that, that uh, basic economics will tend to drive more globalization integration anyway. What really changed in recent decades was the political willingness to, ha- to allow this happen, particularly after World War II. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of the conversation right now surrounding globalization has been based on very recent events. But, and we talk about this in the paper, it seems that globalization actually stalled during the global financial crisis. Carrie, what caused globalization to slow down? Well, I think the impetus of globalization was a lot of the things that David has just outlined there. And obviously it did generate a lot of wealth. Inequality is actually one reason to see the arguments rise against globalization. We tend to think about that wealth rising across countries as GDP per capita levels rise. But at the same time, that wealth hasn't been evenly distributed across all of that population. And so you've seen some get very wealthy and some not so wealthy. And that's been one of the more recent pushbacks against the idea of globalization. So even if you've seen this uneven spread of wealth across countries, actually has been perhaps one of the reasons we've seen that populism come through. And some people aren't so happy with how this globalization has housed turned out for them. It's also led to an example where you can also think about why wages have been depressed for many years because of that internalization of labor. And we think about how that lowest cost of labor has then been exported around the world. And on top of that, you've had some instances where uh, domestic industries, which were shuttered from the world, are suddenly being opened up to international competition and more efficient or effective practices elsewhere actually mean that those industries are now being shut down. People are losing their jobs, their livelihoods, and again, that's being blamed on that globalization. However, you could argue that some of that has just been technology advancing and that as much as globalization has been the cause of what's led to that domestic industry, which has perhaps been less efficient, being replaced by other means and becoming more efficient through those. There are other points that you'd look to in the paper that really talk about why you've seen that pushback against globalization more recently. And I think one of them is really around the strength of these organizations, which are there internationally to promote it. These are things like the, the WTO, the World Trade Organizations. They were there to promote globalization, to have that free flow of trade and capital and labor around the world. But they've really lost their bite over the last decade or so. They're just not as forceful in pushing forward these global deals between countries. And when you look at the data, you really did see that those deals came to a peak in 2008. And the cumulative number of those deals in terms of free trade agreements have actually been in place around the world and peaking and then actually starting to fall until very recently when we saw a couple of very large deals being announced. And that's because many of the world's largest economies have actually found it easier to fulfill these trade agreements and trade relationships at the regional level and circumvent the things like the World Trade Organization. So the most recent ones have obviously been the regional comprehensive economic partnership that we have in Asia, or you can look towards the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well. These are the ones that are being put in place to achieve some of those economic outcomes, but also some of those political outcomes that David mentioned as well. And then finally, coming back just to that point around populism earlier, one of the unintentional effects of globalization that has really come through and more recently been felt around the world is people are probably just asking themselves why things like the subprime housing crisis in the US was suddenly affecting people here in Australia, or those in America wondering why the Eurozone debt crisis was have suddenly having an impact on the way they live. The globalization of economies and markets does mean that you feel the negative consequences of those types of environments, as well as the positive ones. 
And again, I think that's one of the reasons we've seen that pushback against globalization if people have been relatively unhappy with some of those unattended consequences. Mm -hmm. And on the topic of populism and political forces, what are the new geopolitical battle lines that have been drawn by Russia's war in Ukraine? And David, maybe I'll direct this one to you. Yes, I, I think uh, obviously the, the horrendous uh, actions of uh, Vladimir Putin in uh, attacking Ukraine have changed the picture here. And I think what we're seeing is, and this you know, partly springs out of this, this sort of populism that Kerry was talking about, but we're, we're really seeing a division between the more autocratic governments in the world on one side and the more democratic governments on, on another. And I think that uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, has really led the West, it's pulled the West closer together, uh, but also it has in some ways further divided the world between those countries that are willing to support Russia or at least enable Russia to maintain this conflict and those countries that are determined to oppose him in his expansion efforts. Um, and I think this is, uh, you know, it's a further... Um, a further roadblock towards um, globalization. So, you know, I think these, uh, we were already dealing with uh, populism, populism from the left and populism from the right. And, you know, whether the, uh, whether this meant that, that uh, the public was, was blaming or encouraged to blame foreigners in general or immigrants um, or multinational corporations. Um, either way, populism tends to find it's easy to find a target in some other group. And, uh, you know, globalization really requires people to be open to other groups. And I think that is why we're having a, a tough time um, maintaining a trend towards globalization at this time. Mm -hmm. So clearly the outlook for globalization from here has become more uncertain. But what future paths may globalization take? And which do you think is the most likely outcome? In the paper, we look at three possible paths. One is that globalization is simply renewed and we get going again uh, after a hiatus of uh, about 15 years here in terms of global trade. Uh, one is that we have a sort of a multipolar world uh, in which we don't have uh, full fragmentation, uh, but we have people picking sides. Uh, and so you've got big trading blocks. Uh, and then there's also the third possibility of just much more fragmentation around the world with everybody trying to protect their own little industries, their own little fiefdoms. Uh, all of those are possible. I think the I think it might be naive to hope for a quick return to broad globalization. And I say that with, you know, I do have perhaps more sympathy for globalization than a lot of people, because I do think that that generally speaking, it is responsible for raising living standards around the world. Uh, particularly in developing countries. And I also think that a world in which we understand each other, are closer to each other, share culture and ideas and, and, and knowledge um, is, a, is a better world. Um, but I think it's naive to expect that at this time, given the troubles the world is facing economically um, and geopolitically, that we're going to see a return to that. I think a full, uh, a full fragmentation is also not entirely likely because... Uh, there are common interests, very strong common interests among groups of countries. Everybody wants to get ahead. People do need to trade. There are genu genuinely countries that can supply cheaper labor, cheaper natural resources, better technology. And there are genuine economic advantages in these countries working together. Um, and so 
the long history of economics suggests that if you if you just build big walls of tariff barriers against the world, you will get poorer. Um, and I think that most countries will be able to resist that urge. Uh, so we think that the most likely outcome, and admittedly either the, the other two are possible, but the most likely outcome is something where we sort of end up in a bipolar or multipolar world in which we end up with big trading blocks, perhaps not as much trade between the trading blocks as we would like, but certainly a lot of trading within those trading blocks as uh, countries realign sub uh, supply chains uh, and realign their economies so that they can make sure that they, they can get what they need and trade what they need uh, with friendly countries that, that are willing to trade in that way. And so we think all of these outcomes are possible, uh, but perhaps the most likely is, is a, a sort of an evolution to a, a bipolar or multipolar trading world. And is there anything that we can kind of be on the lookout for to try to deduce which path we're on and where we're headed? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a shot, take a shot at this. And also, Carrie, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, I think the, the, the easiest marker for where we are is simply to look at the volume of global trade. I mean, if, if you look at, if you go back, to, and we show this in the paper, if you go back to 1970, uh, global trade in goods and services represented about 25% of global GDP. And uh, by the great financial crisis, this had risen to over 60% of GDP, and it is now particularly, you know, pretty much flatlined. And so what we'll be interested in seeing over the next few years as the pandemic effects fade is can we see that growth resume? Probably more in services than in goods, but can we see trade as a share of GDP rise more? So I think that that's one constant marker or one clear marker of what's going on. But we'll also have to look at just uh, geopolitical trends. And I think the position of China, the attitude of China over the next few years will be particularly important in, in uh, trying to figure out whether we're headed uh, towards a more integrated global economy or a more um, separate kind of global economy, whether fra full fragmentation or uh, multipolar. Kerry, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, obviously, I agree that the political and regulatory environment is going to play a large part. The corporate interests and the incentives don't really change. They just are shaped by the regulatory environment they operate in, whether that's the actual tariffs in place or the non-tariff barriers that come into place. We think about what's happening in terms of climate policy and shifting attitudes towards different countries and how they're going to tackle net zero at their own pace and on their own terms and whether that's really something that's going to be a global solution or that's something that's going to be handled at a country or even regional level. And then we have to think about those other changes coming through on the policy side, whether it's about taxes that we've seen shift towards a minimum global tax and how that may affect where companies want to operate for that purpose, or whether it's about data and data protection or this rise in digital sovereignty that we've seen. That's obviously becoming a growing issue that could affect how companies want to operate in this environment or the treatment of those companies in different places around the world. But there are a couple of other points that we could look to in terms of what shapes that outcome in terms of that full fragmentation of globalization, a multipolar world, or even that path back to renewed globalization. And that does come back down to these attitudes around how innovation and technology really get delivered and where we've got to in terms of globalization and made it what made it possible. And whether that will continue if we think about the advent of things like robotics 
or whether it's automation and processes that allow production to be based closer to end consumers rather than having to be transported around the world, or whether it means that we can actually deliver more services globally rather than to be having to be based locally. So I think those are going to be very large determinants of how these policies play out, how that trade intensity, if you want to put it that way, actually develops, whether there's more of it just with inside the country's borders rather than trading across those borders. And also, if we think about just where growing consumer demand is coming from, whether that rising wealth we see in many parts of emerging Asia, for example, is going to be a driving force in itself and thinking about how companies operate globally and where they do want to be trading across those borders or actually just being present within those borders and markets themselves in terms of how they operate to service those markets. And Carrie, when it comes to the global energy transition, you know, what impact will that have on trade and trade relationships? Can, can that global effort still bind countries together? But what we've seen is there's obviously a danger of being reliant on an unreliable source of energy or even a single source of energy from what's been happening throughout Eastern Europe, the war in Ukraine and into Western Europe. And that's fueled some of the shift in terms of thinking about renewables, how we have those alternative sources of energy and how countries can become more self-sufficient in terms of producing energy. And that's not a transition that's going to happen quickly. And so we do have to think about the need for fossil fuels to be still very present in our economy and a key source of thinking about where we actually generate energy from. But as we do shift to becoming a global economy that's reliant on fossil fuels to one that's reliant on renewables, it's going to come with a new type of commodity trade and commodities that are going to be key to those processes. We're going to focus more on minerals and those minerals are going to be used much more heavily we think about power production from solar or wind compared to coal, or whether it's how we think about the effects of electric vehicles compared to the combustion engine. Those commodities can't be substituted. They're located in specific places around the world and they're going to have to be traded. So what we might see is more strategic trading agreements around the security that comes with accessing those materials or minerals. But again, that's going to be something to be slow to shift and really illustrate the fact that you can't completely separate the global economy or countries because of the shift towards everyone wanting to achieve net zero, everyone wanting to have access to a lot of the same minerals to do so, and therefore being to a certain extent bound by the commodities trade and how those commodities trades take place, but maybe shaped a little bit differently. Yeah, one of the stats that stood out to me from the paper was that while electric vehicles are more energy efficient, they require six times as many minerals in their production than traditional cars. So we might even more heavily rely on global trade to make that transition to, to, to electric vehicles. One of the things you mentioned also was innovation. How might this next wave of innovation affect globalization and does it differ between goods and services? Well, I think that's the key point. When everyone thinks about globalization, we tend to focus on goods. And we need to recognize that while trade in goods may have waned or been in decline, the trade in services actually has been increasing at a pace around twice as much. What we're seeing is the digitalization of the global economy. Those things that were in a physical format are now becoming digital and easier to trade around the world. And they aren't captured by the, the physical goods trade, which we often see the data on. 
in the six years to 2022, you can actually look at the capacity of the internet exchanges around the world to deliver bandwidth. And within that six year period, it's actually increased sixfold. So we have more capacity to deliver these things digitally around the world, to deliver services globally and to actually deliver those services to growing areas that want it. We can think about that rising wealth in those emerging markets, the things they want to access like more financial information, access to different types of healthcare services or insurance or financial products, the things that come with being a wealthier consumer that have actually presented in developed markets already are now showing up in emerging ones but can be delivered by those services in a more virtual format. So what that increase in communication technology, that increase in collaboration around the world that's been so supported by that digitalization actually does is inform that greater growth in the services side of things when it comes to thinking about globalization uh, and sort of taking away from what we're seeing in the goods trade. However, in terms of physical goods uh, and the trade around the world, I think again, what we're gonna see there is a shift away from simply having production based on low income workers or low wage costs. And we think about the fact the cost of automation and robotics has declined significantly over the last number of years to a point where it's actually probably cheaper than labor in many economies. And that does mean companies have a lot more flexibility in terms of where they base their production. They're no longer tied to those sort of very low, large workforces where we have cheap labor. And that does mean they have a lot more flexibility in where they want to base themselves to service that growing area of demand. And I think the evolution we're seeing in technology towards robotics, towards things like 3D printing, towards automation is going to be a key determining factor in how much we see trade around the world. And key in terms of thinking about that technology wave is going to shape the future of globalization. And thinking more broadly, David, what kind of implications does this multipolar scenario have for the dollar and other global currencies? Well, I think the dollar will continue to be a uh, the world's reserve currency. Uh, I know there have been challenges to the dollar. Uh, I think a lot of people thought when the euro was um, introduced that it would be pose more of a challenge to the dollar. But Europe has had its own economic problems uh, over time. And then obviously the, the Chinese would like the yuan to be a bigger part of global capital markets. Uh, but again, there are um, you know, question marks around the Chinese economy and around um, the uh, use of the yuan in uh, international transactions. I think everybody's actually quite kind of happy for the dollar. Everybody except the United States ought to be happy to have the dollar as a stable global reserve currency. I think that's what it will continue to be used at. In some ways, the U.S. Um, suffers from this. So you you get. Uh, some some advantages from everybody using euro reserve currency, but it tends to push it up. And so the dollar is currently trading at a um, a twenty year high in in nominal terms and close to a forty year high in real terms, and that is costing U.S. jobs. Um, so you know if U.S. policymakers were looking at this um, in perhaps a more rational way, they might see a reason to bring the dollar down and a reason to sort of share the wealth in terms of the use of reserve currencies. But if the U.S. Um, the Treasury Department and Federal Reserve do not intend to push the dollar down, I think everybody else is pretty much willing to have the dollar be strong, be, have, be the reserve currency. So I, I, I think in, in most of these scenarios, 
I think you will continue to see the dollar have that strength. It doesn't imply any uh, real economic advantage for, for the United States, but it does give the global financial system a uh, currency which they can trade in, which they know is relatively stable, which is well protected by the U.S. Uh, central bank and also um, uh, institutions. And so I don't really see any big change in the dollar's use as a reserve currency, um, certainly not within the scope of our long-term capital market assumptions, which you look at over the next 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And another hot button issue right now is inflation. Uh, what impact might this scenario have on long-run inflation dynamics? Well, globalization has for many years been a force towards lower inflation. Uh, certainly in the United States, you had both a rising dollar, which tends to reduce inflation because it reduces import prices, uh, but also the whole trend of globalization is essentially one of efficiency. You, you, you make things in the places where it is cheapest to make them. Uh, and because of that, the, the growth in globalization had been accompanied by, for most of, its, most of the period, uh, by declining inflation rates. Uh, now, we have more recently, as you, as you know, seen more populism with, with Brexit and then with the United States reverting to higher tariffs uh, back uh, late in the last decade. Um, and so there, is, there has been a movement towards tariffs, and tariffs tend to be inflationary. Um, so if we move to a fully fragmented world in which everybody was building tariffs, then you do end up with more inflation. You end up more, with more inflation because of the tariffs themselves. You end up with more inflation because companies produce stuff cozy, you know, cozy in their own markets with the knowledge that they're not going to be competed against uh, by cheaper products from overseas. Um, if we add renewed globalization, uh, then I think we'd see a renewal of that disinflationary trend from globalization. In a multipolar world, though, I think you will see some small increase in inflation relative to what you would have seen if we'd had full glo- or return to, to normal globalization. But I don't think it means very high inflation because in both, you know, if you in any sort of geopolitical alignment that you could think of in terms of democracies on one side, maybe autocratic governments on another, there are cheap sources of labor in both blocks. There are uh, areas of technology in both blocks. There are cheap sources of um, commodities in, in all of these areas. So it'll take a little while to, uh, to rewire supply chains around the world. But ultimately, even in a multipolar world, it should be possible to come up with pretty efficient supply chains. And so long as within those blocks, tariffs are low and trade is strong, um, I don't think this has uh, particularly significant implications in boosting global inflation. Okay, that's promising. So slightly higher inflation in the near term, but eventually markets find a new equilibrium. And, you know, maybe difficult to say there are any pure winners in a more fragmented world, given some of the benefits that you mentioned before on globalization. But, Carrie, what kind of regional winners and losers might come out of this realignment of trade flows and, and relationships? Well, I think it's worth recognizing it's not a, a new thing, uh, especially when we think about what we've seen in terms of supply chains. The evolution of how we've worked has really come about from the policies that have been enacted over the last few years. Uh, we can think about the Made in China 2025 policy that was from a few years ago. We can think about the US-China trade war that came through. 
I mean, there's been points at time where I'm sure companies have looked at their supply chains and thought, are they going to be resilient to this change? Are they going to be dependable? And perhaps that change didn't quite happen fast enough for what we've experienced in the last couple of years. But what it has done is seen a quite clear shift in terms of where the production is based in Asia outside of China to the benefit of those economies. You can think about Vietnam being a strong case for one, we've seen a lot of production of consumer goods move to another relatively friendly country. And that's gonna be something we continue to see as more of that production moves to other parts of regional Asia, but where it could still be close to that end source of final demand. We have still uh, a relatively attractive wage base for low income workers, but also an increasingly educated workforce where it's going to benefit places that are looking for that technology edge when it comes to things like automation. You're seeing increasing levels of infrastructure to support that, whether it's through technology infrastructure or physical infrastructure, say, uh, as the development of ports, for example. However, there's going to be a benefit that comes to those markets where we do need to see that growth, that level of wealth and income, and that's going to be where we want to see those goods and companies that want to be close to that. I think it's going to be one of the stronger beneficiaries, particularly within Asian economies. And I think when it comes to the risk out there, it's probably those, unfortunately, of the world's poorest economies that haven't actually experienced the trade boom, or they don't have access to a lot of those natural resources and minerals that people are going to want at the moment, they're going to lose out the most. Really, their only strength has been of having a low cost labor force. And that comes at a time when we're seeing that shift away from that uh, business model that's been dependent on that. And they're probably going to take the greatest hit in terms of their economy and their growth outlook, but also their position within a multipolar world where the value they may add to those regional trading blocks that start to emerge is not sufficient. But we should also think about separating goods and services as well. Those changing consumer habits around the world, particularly as we see that rising wealth in emerging markets, that demand is going to shift and that may actually benefit some more of the services-based companies who see a role to fill that demand. If we think about the number of countries where education as a second language is spoken really widely, that's going to be quite beneficial to thinking about the provision of, say, healthcare services in a virtual format. In that regard, you can think about maybe India or even the Philippines and the ability of those countries to offer something that many uh, multinational corporates are still going to want in that global services environment. And one of the things you mentioned was China and China has been a huge benefactor of globalization over the past few decades. David, how does it, this shape the growth outlook in China? Well, I think it is challenging for China. I, you know, China has, uh, I think, as Kerry mentioned, has a greater focus on trying to do it themselves and build their own internal um, wealth and economic progress. But China has been a tremendous beneficiary from uh, globalization over the years. It has really lifted Chinese living, living standards more than in any other major country in the world. It's really been uh, something of a miracle since uh uh, Deng Xiaoping first uh, uh, put China on a path towards um, openness. Uh, and I think part of this is, yes, the benefits of trade. Uh, but I think also part of it is just the entrepreneurial spirit of the Chinese people. Uh, I think that the 
um, one of the, the great benefits of increased Chinese openness was to unleash that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and uh, I think all countries benefit from seeing how stuff is done elsewhere, uh, particularly in a world that's evolving with lots of technological possibilities. Um, so I think China has been perhaps the world's greatest beneficiary from globalization. And, um, you know, hopefully China will see a value in continuing towards that path or, or resuming towards that path. Uh, obviously, there are, um, you know, a political evolution in China also. But uh, China would benefit from the essentially the more you get on a path of globalization, the better China will tend to do. Um, and uh, one hopes that China sees that. And so if we have slightly higher inflation and some efficiency losses in the near term, Carrie, what does this mean for valuations in which sectors might be more or less vulnerable? I think starting at a very broad level, if there's going to be more inflation, we should sort of base the fact that real rates are going to be higher than they have in the past. Now, if you have higher real rates, that would lead to lower valuations at an aggregate level. That's just simply how the maths works out. Uh, however, it's never going to be that simple. Obviously, investors are rather going to be needed to compensate it for the risk that comes with the perception around maybe supply chains or access to markets or even the regulatory risk out there. Or they're going to be want to be overpaying or have higher multiples and valuations on areas they do think are good to provide that access. So you are going to get that dispersion across valuations. And that may come back again to thinking about supply chains that are more dependable or where there's a greater need for a particular resource. On that, I'd start with the energy sector and mining and minerals as well. We do have that shift towards focus of renewables obviously coming through more strongly all the time. And clearly that realization that we are still very reliant on fossil fuels as well for some time, whether that be oil or natural gas or even coal. Now that's likely to support commodity prices, but also mineral prices as well. They're likely to be elevated. And you have to think that people are going to be wanting to pay more for those sectors in the future than perhaps they have in more recent years as we focus more on that shift to renewables. In terms of the technology sector and technology more broadly, you can think about this in a couple of different ways. There's going to be increasing demand for a more digital world and what that brings is the delivery of digital services. Things like the advent of cloud computing and how that works out, artificial intelligence and technology, and also all the development that's needed on the back of that. It's also reliant on this idea that we now have this concept of digital sovereignty, that data and data protection is becoming more and more important as we have things that can be shared so freely around the world that's really become to the fore when we think about some of the geopolitics we've seen more recently. That means we need to think about cybersecurity, for example, and defense of that data. And those have been growing areas that have become more investable over time. And obviously, they're probably going to come with a bit of a premium when it comes to those valuations for companies that can deliver it effectively. On the flip side of that, again, thinking about the regulatory environment, there are companies operating in an area where you're seeing also increased taxes around, say, a digital service tax, and that creates its own headwind, but again, for a slightly different set of companies. And that's really where we think about having to have a company-by-company -company basis when it really comes to what a lot of these regulatory changes may mean for earnings and for the outlook of those particular companies. Sticking with the technology theme, as I mentioned earlier, 
We're in that area we see rising benefits from automation around the world and the R&D that comes with it. Things like 3D printing and the ability for production to become more flexible and delivered from more locations. We also think about how parts of the industrial sector stand to actually benefit from that. The fact that wage costs may start to rise, continue countries, for example, from poor demographics and shrinking labor forces in many parts of the developed world, companies are going to want to shift towards more innovative ways of production from delivering uh, those goods, which were traditionally generated through low value add workers and thinking more about the ability to have robotics to fulfill some of those roles. And I think that's going to be another area where you'll see those valuations, again, perhaps be well supported and a lot more sort of investor interest in terms of the long-term returns that come through. It is a growing area of focus in terms of that innovation and automation, particularly when it comes to the goods side of things and thinking about goods trade. Thank you both for joining me and sharing the insights from your latest research paper on this important topic. The world is certainly changing, but it's helpful to know that we don't expect globalization to unravel, but to evolve and continue to allow for the important trends towards technological innovation and clean energy and the kinds of implications this may have for the global economy and investing. And thank you all for listening. Please tune into our next episode, which will be focused on the takeaways from the U.S. midterm elections. Dr. David Kelly will be joined by Michelle Messick, Managing Director and Head of Federal Government Relations at JPMorgan Chase. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to David's Notes on the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday he shares commentary on the latest in the markets and economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. And for even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to his content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.